Physicist Eugene Rabinowitz, in 1945, warned U.S. leaders not to use the atomic bomb on Japan. Later, he regretted not having gone public with his concern. In 1971, in a letter to the New York Times, Rabinowitz wrote, quote, Before the atom bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I had spent sleepless nights thinking that I should reveal to the American people, perhaps through a reputable news organ, the fateful act, the first introduction of atomic weapons, which the U.S. government planned to carry out without consultation with its people. Twenty-five years later, I feel I would have been right if I had done so. End quote. The trigger for Rabinowitz's letter was the leaking of the Pentagon Papers on the Vietnam War by Daniel Ellsberg. In the spring of 1958, the Golden Rule, a 30-foot skiff crewed by four, sailed towards the Marshall Islands where the U.S. military was testing atomic bombs. They would anchor their tiny ship in the waters close to the Bikini and Anahuitoc Atolls. Why a sailboat against nuclear bombs? Why not, you know, walking or a, a bus or something? Why a well, sailboat? There's some people that are walking and there's some people that have buses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Veterans for Peace didn't sit down and decide, well, what we'd like to help, what we'd like to have a sailboat or something else. No, this, this sailboat came to us. It was chosen by four Quaker peace activists in 1958, uh, led by a World War II, retired World War II Navy commander. They chose to, to get this boat and to sail it right into the test zone in the Marshall Islands. Unfortunately, they weren't allowed to get that far. Yeah. They were arrested and thrown in jail and when they got halfway there into Honolulu. Uh, but uh, that boat and, that, and uh, its sister ship, the Phoenix of Hiroshima, which did sail into the nuclear test zone in the Marshall Islands, they succeeded in capturing worldwide imagination and bringing international attention to the problem of radiation that was floating all around the globe. There's something about a boat um, and the uh, courage it takes to sail a little boat like this across the Pacific Ocean and put yourself in the way of nuclear war inspired a lot of people. And so. Uh, And that was Jerry Condon, who's one of the team that heads up the Golden Rule Project. It's 65 years after the Golden Rule initially made its sojourn to the Marshall Islands. A restored Golden Rule sailed up the Hudson River and moored at Chelsea Pier recently. It was Fleet Week, and the message of nuclear disarmament continued. I'm Alan Winson, and this is Bar Crawl Radio Podcast, usually recording in our local Upper West Side bars, but recently... I was out at the Chelsea Piers and spent some time in the Golden Rule boat with the crew and its supporters as they continue to end the looming possibility of nuclear war. Stephen, Captain yes. Stephen Buck, thank right. you so much for, for talking to us. Yes. Uh, could you tell us about the boat, what kind of boat it is, how old is it? I can't. Uh, it was built in 1957 by a gentleman named Hugh Engelman. And he built a lot of wooden boats on the west coast of the United States, very seaworthy boats. 
Albert Bigelow, the captain of the Golden Rule that sailed to Hawaii, searched for the right boat, and, and after it was narrowed down to five boats, he picked this one because it's a sound, seaworthy vessel. What does that mean, sound and seaworthy? It's a, it's a solid wood boat with good characteristics in the ocean, and it's able to handle the, the worst weather. In fact, they the first time they went out, they had a storm that was so bad it caused uh, one of their crew members to become seasick to the point of death and they had to turn around, but the boat was fine. You can get seasick to the point of death? That's correct, yes. If you can't hold food down or you can't hold water down, you're not, you're not going to do well. And so you need to get off the ocean, get restored. And so they came back. The second time they made it to Hawaii with the boat and they were promptly arrested by the United States government and thrown in jail. This boat in particular, I've sailed up and down the west coast of California and um, sailed it, or well, actually motored it down the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico. And then I've, this is my concluding three months aboard as skipper this weekend. So, correct. Okay, so, you got to go. Yes. Thank yeah. you very much, yeah. Captain Buck. Yeah, you bet. Okay, I'm speaking with Marianne. We're out here by the Golden Rule. Marianne's been on the Golden Rule five months now. I uh, was able to walk onto the boat day one and travel with it from Minneapolis uh, down the Mississippi River to the Gulf and um, came back on board in uh, North Carolina and, and came up in the spring. So that's two and a half months in the fall, two and a half months in the, in the spring in 2023. Had you sailed before? No, and I still don't know how to sail. We, uh, the short story is that the boat hasn't sailed very much. If you were on the open water, there would have been a lot of sailing, but we did inland rivers and waterways, and either you don't have wind or you don't have current, I mean, you don't have depth or you don't have width. And to be able to sail, I've learned you have to have width and wind and enough depth for your boat. How did you get interested in the Golden Rule? I love trees and water. I'm always on the Mississippi walking. And I had a goal of uh, boating down the river and I met, went to a powwow and uh, met the Veterans for Peace. Um, they told me about their project. I have admired them for years doing social justice work in other avenues. and. They said, you should sign up to be on the crew. And I said, I don't sail. And they said, we do, you don't have to. Because I care about trees and water and the mission of the boat, it was interesting. I, didn't, I expected to learn about the nuclear issues. What I didn't expect to learn was that at every stop we made at the Mississippi, there were military and other contaminants as a result of nuclear or other efforts. I didn't expect that there would be unexploded ordnance on parts of the Mississippi. Uh, outside Savannah, Illinois, there is a military, a former military um, armament area. It's closed down now, but they weren't able to eliminate all of the weapons that existed. So, in, and they have difficulty mitigating things that are left behind when a military leaves. So they put up signs. The signs are listed in the navigation guides that are published for the world to see. The signs are literal on the side of the bank of the Mississippi. Mariners, do not get off the boat, do not step on this land. I was shocked. I thought, oh, isn't it too bad? That's just Savannah, Illinois. 
No, every place along the river there is something going on that is a result of either the production of nuclear materials or the production of other arms that is left behind. In Kentucky, Paducah has a gaseous emissions plant, which is the first stage of production of nuclear. They're going to decommission it. It's going to take until 2065 to decommission this gaseous emission plant. This was the first step of the production of the atom bomb, Paducah, Kentucky. They're going to decommission this particular plant, which you'd think, great, they're going to clean it up. Well, the reality is there's some aspects they can recycle, some they can resell, and then there's the rest of this. And if you go and talk to the people there, they will tell you, we're going to put a fence around the rest of it. It's time to have a different approach to how we deal with the materials that go into creating nuclear weapons. I had to learn this to, by going on the boat down the river and learn by talking to people on the way down. It tells us that we have an issue that's, not, that's being managed, but it's not being um, systemically addressed. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for the interview. I'm sitting with Helen Jacquard, and we're out here on the uh, south side of Chelsea Piers, and I'm looking at the Golden Rule. So you live on this boat a lot of the time, right? I do sometimes, but right now I'm mostly shore support. Um, my husband and I are traveling in an RV. Wherever the Golden Rule is, that's where we are. And um, because I'm so busy with organizing, it's hard to spend time on the boat. And I can't do both right now. So, so you move from place to place on land following the boat? Yeah, that's correct. It's, pretty, it's a pretty nice system we have. Right. What about when you're out in the Pacific? So when we were in Hawaii, I would travel on the boat because that was not a cross-ocean piece of work. But when the boat was traveling to Hawaii and back again, I was also kind of shore support. I would take a look at the... There's a new dot that goes on the map every 10 minutes from our tracker. And so I'd go online and look at the map and see where is the um, where is the golden rule, and then I would report that to our supporters that wanted to hear from us. Right, uh, we're we're being inundated here by the uh, private. Uh, oh no, this is the military coming in. This is Fleet Week. Right. I get a quick picture of those guys. Um, sometimes they go like just barely over the top of the masts. In fact, wow. last, yesterday, that's what they did. They just was like, wow. You don't think they do that on purpose, do you? Um, I think some military ones do. I don't know about the others, but we did have our sails up. So, you know, the mizzen sail is, and the, both sails are kind of a bright red color when you're out there. And the mizzen sail has a giant peace symbol on it, and the mainsail has a giant Veterans for Peace logo on it. So certainly, helicopters that are going past are going to notice that. So you, you think the U.S. military is aware of the Golden Rule and what you all are doing? Well, yeah. Um, every now and then we talk to the Coast Guard and they're part of the military. Um, if we're going to do an action like this, like we're about to do, to put our sails up near the warships, then we usually coordinate with them and let them know we mean no hostile intent. We don't have any weapons. Um, sometimes they'll board us and inspect us just to make sure. I'm Jerry Condon. I'm uh, on the Board of Directors of Veterans for Peace and I'm president of our Golden Rule Committee here. Veterans for Peace restored this boat. We found the boat in 2010. It was a, it was a derelict wreck. We restored it and we restored the mission. We've been sailing for the last eight years up and down the west coast, over to Hawaii and back, 
and now all throughout the Great Loop. And everywhere we go, we, we have fantastic experiences and meet lots of wonderful people. And, and people really do find this uh, boat um, hopeful, brings them hope. And people certainly need hope right now. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, talking about nuclear weapons and the possibility of nuclear war, it's not an easy conversation. It's not something that people normally like to think about. Uh, but somehow uh, this boat puts a smile on people's faces and, and lets them know that, uh, hey, you know, we, re we really can do this. Wow. We can stop nuclear weapons. Often uh, uh, shows up at Fleet Weeks. We've done this in Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego while we were on the West Coast. Actually, uh, the, the film about the boat, Making Waves, uh, The Rebirth of the Golden Rule, takes place in a setting uh, in San Diego during the sea and air show fleet week there in San Diego. Golden Rule was built in 1956 in Costa Rica. It was freighted up to Los Angeles where a group of four pacifists bought it. The idea was to sail the Golden Rule into the bomb test area in the Marshall Islands and the folks on board publicized their intentions in every way possible. Because of that, the government decided to stop them in Honolulu when they pulled in for supplies and they ordered them not to proceed, but they did. So the Coast Guard stopped the boat, impounded it, arrested the crew. They were eventually tried, convicted, and jailed. They never did actually finish their, their mission, but there was so much publicity that it did actually cause the cessation of atmospheric testing when it was eventually stopped forever, and the Russians and the United Kingdom and France followed suit shortly thereafter. Uh, so uh, while there's all this big displays of militarism and impressive uh, weapons of mass destruction, we go out, we raise our sail. Uh, the mizzen sail's got a big peace sign on it. We raise the mainsail with the logo of Veterans for Peace, and we just sail peacefully. We don't get in the way. It's not a... Uh, an attempt to disrupt the action. It's just our very presence uh, is the message. And uh, a very, you know, an alternative, this little uh, wooden sailboat, which with this storied history of having tried to stop nuclear weapons testing in 1958 in the Marshall Islands. I, uh, I assume that during Fleet Week, there's a heightened security on the river. Um, do you get permission to do this? Um, Are you afraid at all of being... No, um, no, we've never, well, generally speaking, no problems. We've, we're supposed to stay a hundred yards away from the ships. And uh, um, so we're not going to get anywhere close or pose any threat. Uh, we haven't sought permission. We, I don't know that this is, area is going to be restricted from other boats. Uh, we could, could find out that to be the case. Uh, we had one problem in, at the Fleet Week in Portland, Oregon. Even though we had really good communications with the Navy there, we'd been there all day in the waters together, no problem at all. A, uh, a group of county sheriffs from a nearby county, uh, landlocked county, with their one boat, they didn't even know how to drive. They, they came into the scene late in the day, got in the water and saw us with our sails up, and they said, oh my God, there's the peace terrorists. And so they... Uh, they, they ran up on us like a bunch of cowboys and they didn't know how to drive that boat. They actually ended up ramming the boat and breaking, breaking one of our planks. So, you know, it's always possible that some uh, uh, 
we could face a situation like that. But generally, we, you know, we, we, we try to have a peaceful, non-threatening uh, uh, posture, and we uh, oftentimes will ha end up having uh, direct communications with the Coast Guard or the Navy, um, and uh, we don't expect any any trouble. But, we, but you never know. Here comes the first in the oh, here we go. Ship uh, first battleship, and this parade of warships is coming into sight here. Coming right by us by a tugboat. Yeah. They got the tugboats out there to to uh, give the ships any assistance if they end up needing it. So it's a beautiful day here in Manhattan. We've been having amazing events here. Um, uh, yes, was it yesterday or the day before yesterday? I guess we were invited by the uh, Mexico's mi UN mission um, and who to meet with them, and they invited um, a dozen other nations were there. So we met with uh, representatives from. Mexico, Costa Rica, South Africa, Vietnam, wow. Cuba, Austria, New Zealand, Malaysia, and more. And uh, there was some from the Marshall Islands there too, wasn't there? We had a separate meeting later on for several hours with the ambassador, to, uh, to the UN ambassador from the Marshall Islands, and uh, really strong response. So they're inspired. They they say, you know, we're we're used to just having state-to-state -state conversations. Um, so it's a breath of fresh air for them to be talking with citizen activists, and they were quite inspired. We had a lot of constructive conversation about what can we do to cooperate both citizens and states and nations to uh, move forward the, uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. The next day, the ambassador from Cuba to the UN, Deputy Foreign Minister Gerardo Penalver Portal, visited the Golden Rule and asked about its history. How long have you been involved with the initiative with the Golden Rule Peace Boat? Okay, the, we've been uh, sailing this boat. Uh, we actually found this boat uh, in 2010. Of course, originally mm. it was sailed in 1958, wow. even just before the Cuban Revolution. Yes. And uh, the Veterans for Peace group up there, when they learned about the history of the boat, they decided we're going to rebuild the boat restore it and to continue the mission of sailing for a nuclear-free world. So it took them five years to volunteer labor to put the boat back together and we've been sailing it for the last uh, eight years up and down the, the uh, west coast. Uh, in September we put the boat on a truck from San Francisco Bay to Minneapolis and uh, we sailed down the Mississippi. Captain Steve was very much involved with that um, and then we sailed into the uh, Ohio River, the Tennessee River, the Tom Bigby River, down to the Gulf of Mexico. And that's when we decided, hey, we're going to be in Key West at the end of uh, December, so uh, why not go to Cuba? And so we made all the necessary arrangements, and we had a, a really wonderful, wonderful, special voyage to Cuba. So the Cuban people are, are in our hearts, and now we carry that as an additional message, the importance of uh, ending a blockade, which almost brought uh, a nuclear war to this world and which continues to be uh, incredibly unfair, unjust, really illegal and needs to end. May the eyes of justice light the way May the road be clear for the calling Freedom, freedom and peace, and peace mission and they went to the Quaker meeting and they said um, we need support and then people supported them. 
they don't always agree a hundred percent and one funny story is one woman when they were raising money and my father could be a little bit in your face <laughs> just a little bit and she said I'll donate to it's a military helicopter so she, they were raising money for a trip around the world to promote peace, and he, she said, I'll give Lil round-trip ticket, but George's is one way. <laughs> and my father loved to tell that story. That was Anita Willoughby. When she was a child, her Quaker parents, George and Lillian, were active in peace movements. Her father was part of the original crew of the Golden Rule. Anita Willoughby, we just met the uh, Cuban ambassador. What, what was that like? Just another human being. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I, that's one thing my parents helped me with. I can meet people from all stratas, and they're all human. Yeah. So in 1958, you were 10 years old. 10 years old, and yeah. And your father, um, George? George Wilson Willoughby. <laughs> Willoughby was one of the four crew members yes. on the Golden Rule. What are your memories of, of when he left? We moved from Iowa to New Jersey, and then all of a sudden they became more active in their beliefs and protesting. And and this is the day is your, your mother Lillian and Yeah, they were George. totally in sync, my mother and father. Um, my mother did more, a little bit more staying home to be the center for the family because there was four young kids. Um, when we need a sense of stability and ironically, through all the things that they did and the number of times they got arrested, I always had a firm reality check in home base. Every time we went away for a weekend or went on a vacation, we were protesting something, whether it was a vigil or a march. Um, I actually have fond memories of the mar marches in Washington in front of the White House before you, you know, when you were still allowed to march, but you had to keep moving. So those were the most fun for me, rather than the vigils where you stood for hours. I was a kid, and, and I would just walk around, and you know, you had this sense of community and people and fellowship, and people were there supporting. And everyone's taking care of you. Yeah, everyone was like, you knew you were like safe. Yeah. And it was sort of exciting to yeah. be involved in something bigger than just you. Right. Or at least uh, that's how I felt about it. I have one picture of myself and a photographer took a picture of us walking in front of the White House and I stuck my head out to get in the, in the picture. <laughs> Whoa, I want to be in this. <laughs> when my parents were much older and, and my mother found a real strong voice in her, I don't know, late 70s, early 80s. She went, that grandmother's for peace. She um, blocked the entrance to a building, in the federal building in Philadelphia over the Iraqi war. She went to jail for a week and they sent this little old Quaker lady <laughs> could barely, you know, really couldn't walk that well and they sent her to jail for a week because she refused not to go. Like, and we all called her and we said, Ma, what are you thinking? And she goes, Everybody else has gone to jail. I'm going to jail. I'm not. And they, people were saying, pay the fine, get out. And then we all went down for the trial, and she's in a wheelchair. My older sister is wheeling her, and she can't hear that well. And the judge says, you know, I have to give you the same sentence as everybody else. And she put her fist down on the, on the bench, and she said, I know, and I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> And so that's the kind of voice that she found later in life to really, a lot of chutzpah. And uh, 
she went to jail, and when I'm, I didn't even try to stop her. I just could like, you have? No, yeah. uh, other people tried, but I was like, I know my mother. No, she's going. Right. <laughs> and right. Um, and she came back, and she said, I'm going, and I'm practicing my yoga. Um, I'll go in a, jail. In jail, you know, armchair yoga, sort mm-hmm. of, and mm-hmm. I'll meditate and fast. <laughs> Both my parents taught me. But maybe especially my mom, that it's really all the way that you look at something. You could be angry because you were in jail and they, you know, wasn't the nicest. It was sort of cold. They didn't give you many blankets. But she found a way to connect to the humanity of some of the guards. And they ended up bringing her an extra blanket. She actually taught me a lot about that. No matter what you are, where you are in life, everybody's a human being. Growing up, um, you're different, you know, parents are in the newspaper and it wasn't very popular back there in the late 50s, early 60s. By the time I got to college, it became a a different story, but by that time, I like to joke and say I was doing peace marches since I was eight years old, and when I was in college, I stopped. I should say that Anita Willoughby... Uh, is a healer. Um, well, yes, I do alternative healing. It's, it's and that empowering people to heal themselves and each other with our hands. How do we heal ourselves in this society? Well, that is a million-dollar question. <laughs> I've asked myself that over and over again. Um, I think one number one, we need to turn inward and find our strength and our values and connect to something larger than just us. We're only here for a moment. You know, we think it's eternity, but it isn't. It feels like an eternity. It's all relative. (laughs) But uh, really, we're only here for a moment. And what do we want to do? What imprint do we want to leave? What do we have at the end of our lives? And we're all going to die. I want to leave a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money. Well, you know, you can't take it with you. Shrouds don't have pockets. I have a couple of favorites. Did you ever see a U-Haul behind a hearse? A couple of favorites I love, too. Like, forget it. You can't take it with you. So I just... That's my dream, and I travel around the world. I do many things my parents did, but I do them my own way because it's my path. And and I do believe I'm an eternal optimist. I believe it's happening. And I believe there's a shift happening, a paradigm shift. But it's slow and painful. <laughs> Anita Willoughby, thank you very much for sharing next to your father's boat. Yeah. can almost bring tears to my eyes. I bet. You know, I bet. Very, uh, You're going to go visit his bunk now, or his berth. I can get my sea legs. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty. Just hold on to something. Yeah, I'll hold Just on. hold on to some marks. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. As long as there are sovereign nations possessing great power, war is inevitable. That is not an attempt to say when it will come, but only that it is sure to come. That was true before the atomic bomb was made. What has changed is the destructiveness of war. Albert Einstein. Do you you see minds are changing? I think so, yes. Oftentimes, minds will change in the course of a five-minute conversation because people haven't had that conversation before. Haven't thought about it. Yeah, that's right. Or they're hanging on to uh, the standard patriotic propaganda 
And uh, if you give them some another uh, logic to uh, to grasp, uh, then they can let go of that one. Yeah, changing minds is not easy. No, it isn't. But uh, you have to you have to work at it. And uh, this boat is uh, probably one of the most uh, creative, uh, persistent uh, ways I could imagine of changing minds about right. the war, nuclear weapons, and war. The music for this program is Lou Tobacco's Garden at Lifetime. And we used a brief segment from the Veterans for Peace Golden Rule Project documentary.